You're listening to the Irish Times. Now that was a weekend of sport, Pat. That was a lot of sport. It was a lot of sport. There's so much sport that Ireland's rugby test feels like it happened, you know, in about 1940, sitting here on Monday morning. It, it feels like so long ago. You've got recency bias. There's total recency bias. We will have Jerry Thorney on later to uh, remind me what happened uh, at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. I'm pretty sure we won. I think we won, yes. Uh, and then there was the uh, the sport Mageddon of all the World Cup. Yeah. That happened. Um, Roscommon and Galway will be talking about later too. Indeed. Uh, that was what I had to do for work. Uh, in the middle of uh, interrupting my enjoyment of the sporting weekend, I had to go and do some work at uh, Roscommon Galway. Um, God love you. But the most crack I had actually watching the golf was, or watching sport in the weekend, was the golf on Saturday night. You're dead right, which is actually why Sunday ended up being a little bit disappointing. Yeah. As soon as I heard that they'd gone and watered the course to the extent that they did, it was a bit of a shame because they turned it into a normal golf tournament. Yeah. Famously, Jack Nicholas used to always say, uh, when it comes to the US Open, I love to hear people complaining about it because I'm not going to complain and everybody is complaining is going to finish behind me. That's a, a, a brilliant way of looking at yeah. it. But it, yeah, I, I like every, and I, remember I was out on Saturday night and I met a barman and I said to him, how's the golf going? And his one word answer was carnage. Yeah. Like, and it was hugely entertaining. Yeah, it was magnificent. And then to, yeah. to back it up is a bit of a yeah. shame. Like. Because what they did last night, uh, when Brooks Koepka won last night, but they, they sort of took the jeopardy out of it in the in the closing holes. Like, uh, Tommy Fleetwood was able to shoot a 63. Shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, it's like uh, his back nine was superb. And yeah. could have, he could have almost shot a 60. He should have had a 62, like he missed a putt in the last. Um but, uh, yeah, I thought by watering it overnight and they, they got spooked by everybody complaining so much about it. Everybody was clutching their pearls about Phil Mickelson's yes. behaviour on Saturday as well, which I dispute and I don't have much of a problem with, but you do. Just to explain it, Phil Mickelson ran. He took a putt that he knew was basically going to go off the green yes. and he ran after it and hit it back towards the hole before the ball had stopped moving. Yes. Now, I... I generally rail against the po-facedness of golf. And and in fairness, there was way too much high horse carry-on over the weekend from people talking about the desecration of the game and trying to shame Mickelson into uh, getting down on his knees and begging for forgiveness. Uh, I still, though, at a certain level, at a certain level, golf's rules are idiotic. There are so many of them. They, they're so... Picayune, like there, there's so many for stupid, small, little things. I always think it should be simplified to about 10 rules and let people get on with it. But the main overarching thing that makes golf enjoyable is that you don't be a dick about it. If you're going to run after your ball uh, to stop it going off the green, you're being a bit of an arsehole about it. You are, but just as if you're playing a five-a-side soccer game and you, you put a guy's jersey because he's throwing goal, you're being a bit of a dick about it too. Yeah, but, but I always give out to those people. Yeah, and that's fair enough. But the people <laughs> who do it in the World Cup get away with it. And Phil Mickelson's a professional golfer who saw a loophole. Like, technically, the rule should be if you run have deliberately run after and stop a ball going off a green, then you're disqualified. Yeah. And if that was the rule, that'd be fine. Phil Mickelson wouldn't have done it. Yeah. But he found a loophole and went for it. 
Yeah, but he was being disingenuous in saying he found a loophole and went after it. Like, you know, you could do that every week. If if, if you were so minded, you could do that every week. And if everybody was doing that every week, like, golf would be, just become preposterous. It really would. Like, you can't be at that sort of thing. It's just, you know, play the game. The game is very hard, especially at a US Open. Like... That's essentially it. Mickelson wasn't one of the ones whinging about the state of the course afterwards on Saturday night because he had kind of decided, ah, I'm I'm done with this, uh, and had decided not to really care. And uh, I totally get why he got such a program for it, but he knows you know that's not really what the game is. You may as well not, just not do it. Just you know, take your medicine, walk off if you're going to do that. Because you're very high-minded. I'm not. I'm not. This is the thing. I this is, I really hate. I I always think. I always say golf is a magnificent game. If it wasn't for golfers, because golfers are the most boring, po-faced, peril-clutching, uh, annoying assholes in sport. But don't be a dick. Just play the game. That's all. That's all I ask. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we will move on to uh, that that bastion of uh, of rule keeping, the World Cup. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, Emmett uh, Malone uh, is over in Russia. Emmett, you're in Sochi, is that right? I'm still in Sochi for another 24 hours. It's my final day in Sochi, but uh, uh, but it's been a good week and um, looking forward to tonight's game. I mean, when the, I don't think it's gonna gonna match the uh, the first one, Spain Portugal on Friday night, but. Um, but it should be interesting. Uh, first look at Belgium, who um, who impressed very much against us a couple of years ago, and then went on to do nothing really in Euro 2016. We're going to see get a first idea of whether they're capable of doing a bit more here. Where are you going tomorrow? So I'm going to Katzenberg tomorrow for France and Peru. Uh, I'm there for four days, then off to uh, Kazan for seven, eight, nine, ten days, something like that. Quite a long extent, I can't remember how many. And St. Petersburg, back to Kazan, back to St. Petersburg, and Moscow. So, um, yeah, so it's all beginning to sit in place. I just have to book some of it. So that's the only, that's the only issue remaining. Emmett, it struck me over the weekend uh, with some of the results. You know, Argentina drew one all, Brazil drew one all, Germany, yeah. Germany lost one nil. Struck me, really, Ireland wouldn't mm. have been out of place at this World Cup. <laughs> okay, I'm not entirely sure I thought. <laughs> well, those are the kind of results there, but, uh, that the, those are the kind of results that we usually bring to the party. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Well, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a couple of those were based on just really poor performances, and and and, and a couple of them based on sort of tenacious uh, performances by the underside. So, um, so I was working away last night in the press centre while Germany Mexico was on. But what I, what, what, from what I saw that, I thought it was a tremendous. Um, Performance by Mexico. They uh, they really uh, they really battled their way through the game. Showed a lot of bravery on the break. Thrown uh, them, you know, bodies forward, and then and then really kind of punished uh, Germany when they were forced to to um, to chase the game. Um, you know, keeping them really under under a lot of pressure. So that was great. I'm not sure that we, you know, that's the sort of game that I mean we talk about playing a lot. You know, uh, absorbing a lot of pressure, and notwithstanding the fact that we you know, we beat Germany, you know, in those sort of circumstances a few years back. Uh, it's not something that we pull off very well, very often. So, um, so yeah. But 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 what what there is there kind of the common factor I think is that none of the big teams in this tournament so far have really made a statement. You expect somebody to come in, one of the favourites, to really come in and, and pump somebody and say, "Here we are, you know, we're going to win this thing." Uh, Germany certainly didn't do that. Brazil, despite a, a strong first half performance, didn't do it. And France, I mean, they won their game, but they were deeply unimpressive. So. Um, so, you know, it's one of the things I think that's, that's made it tonight more interesting, that this Belgium team, they've 
deeply underachieved at Euro 2016 after showing a little bit of promise at, at 2014. Um, in Brazil, the talk, all the talk was that the experience would stand to them and they'd go on from that. They were kind of ridiculous as favourites for 2016 and did so poorly there. I mean, they lose their opening game against Italy, then they're well beaten by Italy having, or by Wales having led. But nobody, you know, they've suddenly become real kind of outside dark horses for some people, but outsiders again here. But the collection of talents in the team is so immense that you're thinking they have to be contenders. Um, people have their doubts about Martinez, uh, particularly Everton supporters. Um, so there's, there's a lot to kind of find out about them. We'll see. We'll see. I have a little now. I mean, they're playing Panama tonight. Probably one of the weakest teams in the tournament. We'll get some sort of sense of, of, of whether they mean business here. And, uh, and that's going to be interesting because if they come here tonight now, win by by a few goals, which is quite possible because it's a weak Panama team, uh, then, then I think suddenly people will start to really kind of sit up and take notice of them again. Um, I must say one thing I've kind of enjoyed uh, watching the games uh, over the weekend. I didn't see an awful lot uh, yesterday because I was uh, on duty sure. down in Roscommon, but uh, yeah. I watched an awful lot of games on, on, on Friday and Saturday. One thing I, I have kind of enjoyed is that... Uh, there's, there seems to be far more chaos than you're used to watching at club level. Like you watch club football and everything is very organised and drilled, especially at you know the top level. And everybody, you you, yeah. re- you rarely see anybody sort of standing in the wrong place or anything like that. But God, there was even times yesterday. Germany, Germany were caught with like two men back at times. I know they were chasing the game and all that, but you know, yeah. I, I am quite enjoying. There, there seems to be more chaos than 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 we're used to in the regular part of the season. Yeah, I mean it's. It's funny you're going to fight in Germany as an example of that. I, know, yeah. I, I like yourself. I've been kind of, I, I kind of like it's one of these things at these tournaments that you you tend to be particularly in the early stages. You tend to be traveling so much or working so much or whatever. That actually you see, you know, surprisingly little of the tournament of, of the games, or you're dipping in and out of them. You're doing something else while you're trying to eat. You're trying to work. You're trying to you know. And so I, I you know I haven't been kind of hugely aware of that. Although I think it's kind of slightly rooted in the fact that as you say. You don't see it so much at top-level football. And, and the World Cup, particularly since, you know, over the last 20 years, has been expanded um, to 24 teams, uh, or 32 teams, is, um, is a mixed bag, you know, and there's some really high... Извините, связь прервалась. Sorry, the connection is lost. Emmett <laughs> <laughs> Malone is back on the line, uh, accepting all of Russia's apologies for their own interruption there. Um, <laughs> did you get to see much of Brazil yesterday? Yeah, I, I saw, I saw, um, I saw, I, I saw a fair bit of Brazil in the aptly named Cowboy Bar and Grill um, <laughs> here in Sochi, near the Olympic Park. Uh, yeah, I saw a good bit of it. Oh, yeah, I tell you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, some of, some of the worst food and worst service in, in the greater Sochi area. Um, yeah, look, it was, um, it was. I, I thought Brazil started impressively. I thought they were they were good. They did what we thought they would do. They kind of. Um, they pinned uh, Switzerland back, who looks, you know, it has to be said, nearly all happy enough to be pinned back. Um, we saw them, you know, working kind of patiently to open them up. And um, and after they scored the goal, kind of I felt at that stage that they could push on and, and, and win quite well. I mean, the Swiss, Swiss team is decent enough. Like, it's not a, it's not a terrible team. Um, but they were showing, you know, obviously very little ambition at that stage. I think they, they thought that maybe they could see it out for the 90 minutes without conceding the goal. And once that didn't happen, it took them a while to get going. I thought through to, to half time, Brazil was still well on top, but they probably lost their way in the second half and, um, and didn't look great at all. Uh, didn't look to have the kind of, uh, 
the the kind of mental strength to push on and 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 make the game safe. And and then the the goal they conceded was very poor. I know there was a, a claim for a push, but I, I mean it didn't look the most. I'm not saying it wasn't a foul, but it looked the most outrageous thing in the context of a corner coming in like that. So. Um, yeah, so I, I wasn't blown away by them, really. Uh, I do think that they'll probably still go on and, um, and, and, and do well in this tournament. How well, you know, remains to be seen, but certainly the quarters, semis, uh, there is obviously a lot of talk about them winning the tournament and being favourites. I'm still not convinced by them in, the, in that sort of context. But, you know, again, you have to take it in the context of, 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 of what the other rivals have done. And France has started poorly, though they've won, and that's maybe, the, I, I'm sure Didier Deschamps would say, the most important factor. Germany, as you mentioned, were just completely all over the place at times uh, against an Mexico team that, that that showed bravery against them and defense. I mean, they could have they could have conceded at least another couple of goals at different times. Uh, so, um, so you know, it's it's um, it's it's interesting. Nobody, as I, as I was saying earlier, has really kind of come in and and looks like they they're capable of completely taking throw. Emma, that goal that Switzerland scored against Brazil, it kind of showed up how VAR still has some kinks to be ironed out of it. Um, we literally had the Brazilian players going back to midfield, pointing up at a screen in the stadium at what was a pretty obvious push. I know how you, what you mean when you say you're not sure if it was a foul, but it still kind of was an obvious push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, look, I know, I know, we, I know we pushed him. I mean, I just, I, I suppose I'm into that kind of, you know, uh, pundit territory of, you know, if you if, if you gave a gave a free out for every push and God knows, you know, what, what defenders are doing that isn't caught on, on camera. I, I don't know, you know, I like I uh I, I completely agree. if I was a Brazilian I'd have been claiming it, you know. Uh, as a neutral I'm kinda happy enough to, to to see the guy get away with it. Um there's a lot of cut and thrust in, in dead ball situations in around the area. It was a foul um uh, but I wasn't all that disappointed to see it go. But absolutely I think the VAR so far, I mean uh, again, I've been dipping in and out of it. I've seen, um, I've seen uh, bits and pieces of, of, of claims going. I was at the Portugal-Spain game uh, on on um, on Friday night, where Costa's first goal clearly out of a foul. Like Pepe, Pepe heads the ball, uh, Costa's paying absolutely no regard to uh, to where Pepe is and clatters straight into him. Um, and uh, and you can argue that Pepe made a lot too much of it afterwards or whatever. Uh, but the bottom line is he is taken out of that that move and um, uh, and Costa you know gets to run free, albeit on, on two other defenders who he then makes fools of to finish. But um, look, you know, I, I, I yeah, I'm not convinced by VAR so far at all. I'm not entirely sure what the point of having it is or or delaying these situations if uh, if if things like that are passed over. And uh, and probably you know the Brazil thing last night was an example where you probably expect it when they go to to them. Um, to, to intervene, but uh, yeah, the, the guidelines seem to uh, seem to discourage um, uh, intervention. Uh, you know, a decision being overruled unless it's very, very blatant, and, and we're still kind of we're still seeing where that bar is set. So far, it, it seems to be set pretty high. Emmett, before uh, uh, the Russians intervene again, um, we'll let you out of here. Bef- uh, but talk a yeah, little sure. bit about England first. Uh, they're playing Tunisia tonight. Um, it's uh, an optimistic build-up uh, for England. Um, it's nothing like playing a, a, an African team that could scare the life out of yeah. them <laughs> to water down that optimism. It, it mightn't last very long. It'll be interesting to see how they get on. Yeah, it will. Yeah, I mean, they look, they've worked very hard on kind of, you know, dampening expectations. The general kind of thing is here that, you know, 
everyone in Ireland is laughing as England talk about their chances of winning a tournament. This time they're not talking about their chances of winning a tournament. They're very, you know, they're, they're really kind of, you know, trying, trying not to, uh, to kind of fall into that trap. Um, they've been handed a very easy group, I think, you know, or, oh, sorry, that's overstating it, but, but Belgium obviously are a decent team. Um, Tunisia are, you know, an all right African team. They're, 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 they're one of the better sides there. They, they, uh, they, they're kind of okay. Uh, but, I mean, England, yeah, not to come out of that group would be a calamity. Panama are very weak. You would expect everyone to beat them, uh, and you would expect the two big teams, big European teams in the group to beat, beat Tunisia. Uh, it doesn't always pan out that way, but I think what it requires is either Belgium or England to kind of cock up. I mean, you know, if they, if they do what they're capable of, they should be, you know, comfortably too strong for the Africans. Um, uh, where, where, what England do after that is, is interesting. I mean, they, they, they're strong in a couple of departments. They don't have, you know, they're not great in midfield. Um, whether they have, um, whether they have, I mean, they should probably get to the quarterfinals, but, but after that, you know, I mean, they have the potential, I think, to play, um, uh, certainly Brazil are one of the teams and, and, and I think Germany, uh, in the, in the quarterfinals. And notwithstanding how the two of those have done over the last 48 hours, um, or 2040, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't see them surviving that sort of test. So it's, but, but, but tonight will be an interesting start. Again, I think a little like Belgium, um, they have to go out and, 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 and win well to sort of announce their arrival because, um, if they make life difficult, particularly England, and we've seen strong players, like quite a few players come out and talk about this over the last few months. Uh, former Indian internationals talking about the pressure that the press uh, coverage exerts on them um, and the kind of pressure it creates within the camp. And I don't think the print media is, is, is anywhere near as strong as it, it would have been 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But, um, but if England don't win tonight, which would be pretty remarkable... Or if they really struggle, you know, if they look poor and it looks suddenly like another kind of um, uh, kind of slow car crash unfolding, then um, then I, I think they'll come in for a lot of criticism. And uh, Southgate is pretty well respected. He's pretty well liked. I, I find it hard to imagine that it would descend very quickly into him being ridiculed the way some of his predecessors have been. Uh, some with a little more justification than others. Um, but, uh, but it would certainly put them under a lot of pressure. And... Um, I don't think they'll want to need to beat Belgium. That would be a, that would be a problem for them. Uh, they know those players very well. I think um, you know Belgium have three, four of the best players in the Premier League in their team, and um, and I think England will be very wary of them. I think if they'll, they'll want to go into that last group game, um, uh, you know, certainly not needing anything more than a draw to be to be safe. Interesting. Listen, thanks a million, Emmett. Uh, enjoy uh, uh, your many travels for the week, and uh, we will we will talk to you as it all goes along. Emmett Malone in Sashi there. Mary Hannigan has walked in right in the middle of that. Well done, Mary. Hello, hello. Nobody heard you, but I thought I may as well embarrass <laughs> Crash you. Crash anyway. bang, pud wallop. <laughs> Enjoying the weekend? It's been ruddy marvellous. It really has. It's, and it's nothing like a World Cup. There is not? nothing. And, but I don't know why it's been so brilliant. It's not like it's the been game. a goal fest. I know, yeah. Like, the loads like. of one nils and all of that. But it, it has been brilliant. Absolutely. Well, there's just the sheer decadence of watching four games on a Saturday. <laughs> I did have, I think I had a World Cup, like a, like a hangover. You know you know the way when you're, well, I'm, I'm too old and, and have and have one too many children, i.e. one <laughs> at this point, to uh, get away with kind of going for a pint at like four o'clock anymore. <laughs> but you know the way when you go for a pint at four o'clock, the odd time when you're lucky enough to do it, like by half nine, you're kind of... 
I think by by half nine on Saturday night, I had a football hangover. Had you? I think I had. That's yeah, quite early. It well, it, you know, the first game started a bit to go. I know, but the first game started at eleven well, in the morning. That's true. That's you just true. haven't been preparing correctly for this tournament. Well, that's, exactly, that's a fair exactly. point. Yeah. Which it, but Glenn Hoddle said at some point, isn't it unbelievable? That's a really good Glenn Hoddle impression. Yeah. <laughs> we're having four games in the one day, but as somebody said. We have that like every day of the year. <laughs> Granted, <laughs> not true. World Cup games, yes. but we do have. So There's something more about it. There is something more Definitely. about just the, the yeah. madness of it. Yeah. Even the madness of, you know, how, how Mexico reacted having won yesterday. Just and When Hernandez cried, that was yeah. we were all floored. Or even uh, like the Peru, like the, yeah, the, the, the Peru lad that missed the penalty. I know. And just before halftime, again, <laughs> with Denmark on Saturday. Yeah. And like... Uh, all his teammates got around him walking mm. off the pitch at halftime as if they were kind of, as if he had just, uh, you know, been sentenced to 20 Which years. just made it worse for it him. It made it worse, yeah. yeah. You don't want an entire squad saying, don't worry about don't failing your country it, and <laughs> breaking the hearts of all our children. You don't really want that, do you? How have the pundits so, been, Mary? Well, um, there have been a lot of them. That, yes. That's certainly <laughs> the first observation. But yeah, I think the striking feature with quite a lot of them, I would put it at maybe two thirds plus, is how little they know about yeah. any of the teams. And how they're, proud they are of that. They're very proud. Like You would think they might be a little kind of embarrassed, but no, if it's not kind of England, Germany, Spain, Brazil, they proudly declare, I know nothing about this team. How is that still OK? I don't really know. Like genuinely, this has know. been this has been a trait going back years on TV. I thought it's kind of, Bet Noir was the time that Alan Shearer got hammered for talking about Hatem Benarfa, who had signed for his club, and he basically said, I don't know, I've never heard of this guy, who was a French international yeah. at the time. And yeah. there was such a backlash then, I thought that they couldn't do that anymore. I kind of th- yeah, I thought it had been weeded out a little bit, especially yeah. with, you know, Monday Night Football on Sky and all that, where, where you know, preparation is an obvious mm point of attraction like a, yeah. a, a unique selling point of it and do you remember a few years back Gaza had a very brief punditry career and I think he was with Des Lynam God, so I that's a good I'd while wipe that from my memory I don't remember that <laughs> well he was brought on for some reason to right. kind of do the, a Senegal game and his first thing was you know I must admit Senegal I've never heard of them <laughs> So he wasn't even aware this nation existed. So Gaza got a pile of slagging for that. But like these fellas aren't kind of like poor old Dunphy and there, but for the grace yeah, of God, all of us will go. Yeah. But Dunphy's had a couple of mares, like he was talking about Alison, the I Brazilian goalie last night, saying he was highly rated and might get a move to Europe soon. Him oh, being God. with Roma for two years. Yeah. And Dunphy has also referred to Smalling in being in the England squad and that he's likely to be hauling people down for penalties. Oh, when actually, I, I, if you, I, I also heard that he said, uh, Liam, Liam tells me that Saudi Arabia are quite good. <laughs> so he pr- is very proud of his, his lack of knowledge about these teams. The Smalling issue, if he looked at his papers online, he would see Smalling is in the Caribbean with his wife. And they're very angry headlines about how happy he looks (laughs) when he shouldn't look happy because he's been left out of the England squad. So, yeah, so then on the other extreme, you get Brian Kerr. And there is nothing Brian Kerr doesn't know about, like, Morocco, Iran, Mm -hmm. whatever. I used to do kind of previews with Brian Kerr Mm -hmm. a few years back, and he was just incredible, like the kind Mm -hmm. of amount of research he put into everything. You'd ring him, and, you know, if you're playing Uzbekistan... 
and there was a three-way battle for the left-back slot. Brian would have thoroughly researched the club forum, the three contenders. And like down the phone, you'd hear the paper ruffling and, you know, he would have mountains of research done. He's brilliant. So he kind of clearly feels when he gets a job like this, he needs to do a little bit of work. He shouldn't stand out so much. He shouldn't, but he really does. But he so, he so does. I saw there was a brief uh, Twitter storm over the weekend where some snotty arsehole uh, sent a tweet to uh, RTE saying, ugh, can we, Brian Kerr's voice really drives me insane. Can we not have him on the, on the, on the TV? And uh, as happens sometimes in this situation, uh, the RTE Sport um, uh, account mm. sort of shamed this guy. Now, this guy has about 60 followers or something like oh, that. Oh, they replied to the, him? Oh, they replied to him and like quoted him in it Absolutely. and saying, I think you've misjudged the nation here <laughs> on this one, lad. And the lad got swamped now <laughs> with people horsing into him so going, who are you, blah, 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 Brian Kerr, that's just snobbery, middle-class yeah, twattery, blah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, to the point where I felt a wee bit sorry Did for you? the lad. <laughs> like, he went too far. But but I just I don't really understand how people can just decide that because they don't like somebody's accent I know, I know, yeah. to ignore the, the genius well, of the man. And it's the fact that he just, I mean, at the end of that game, I just felt like an authority in Iranian football, thanks to Brian Kerr. Don't test me on it. Though. <laughs> but but at the same time, he's just massively entertaining as well. Like, And he's so into it. His enthusiasm is just fantastic. So I, it's beyond me how people couldn't enjoy that. There was one part in that game where I think the Swiss keeper saved the ball by kind of spreading himself. And not Swiss. Whoever they were playing, uh, and uh, Morocco was it? And he's he Brian Kerr's immediate take on it was yeah the keeper just took that one in the mush there. <laughs> I just thought this is great stuff to be listening to. And he introduced Drimna. Um, he remembers nineteen seventy in Drimna, fellas walking around in Peru shirts, which was must have been quite a sight. Bangers were mentioned, yeah. all sorts. So One yeah, teams yeah. Had a banger, all right. Yeah. Luco was somebody who ended up getting a bit of attention because she actually did her research over the weekend. She had the brand neck to actually do a little bit of research in Costa Rica before um, their their game and yeah that you see Patrice Everett got a lot of slagging about he applauded her after mm. doing her analysis so he he got uh, quite a bit of abuse for doing that I think his main upset was that she had like shown them all up by having the nerve like to actually do some work ahead of you know appearing as a pundit so um, yeah I think he kind of looked on her like the class SWAT or something but uh, yeah, there was quite a reaction to that and apparently Patrice was pulled aside afterwards and told to stop being a patronising git. So so he'd be the other extreme now, I suspect, like when we see him. Um, be, a bit like, um, what you call the Mayo fellow who said the nasty thing about Mary Robinson? Porrick Flynn. Ah. So he said the nasty thing about Mary Robinson many years ago and then a while later he was on radio and there was a vacancy for the Irish national job, football job. And he was, well, may the best man get it, or woman. <laughs> so he kind of, so many times had his wrist been slapped, he kind of went the other way. So Patrice may now be calling for a woman to succeed Gareth Southgate. It is a, a very notable, uh, this is the first World Cup where there are, across the board, yeah. women pundits. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, it's funny that these things happen it, What's that phrase? Very slowly and then all at once. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't that, isn't that it? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. 
because uh, it's sort of the first one. Well, there's no point saying the first one, because as we all know, RT are groundbreakers in this regard, because the first ever pundit on the Sunday game in 1979 oh, that's really was Liz cool. Howard. That's right. Exactly. Going way, way back. Yeah. To yeah. talk about ahead of her time that's and true. their time. Um, but of course, that, that sort of died off over the years. But yeah. it sort of started with the Rugby World Cup a couple of years ago. Yeah. Remember, ITV had like Maggie Alfonso on. That's right, yeah. Um, and that yeah. sort of set the set the trend. And uh, RT have had Stephanie Roach this time. Um, and Alex Scott. Alex Scott on, on BBC, Luco. yeah. And Ennio Luco. And of yeah. course, Jackie Oakley, Gabby Logan, Vicky Sparks. Like, there's a whole bunch mm. of them. And it, Yeah, yeah but uh, Jackie Oakley and, and, and Gabby Logan, like, are, are presenters, yeah. journalists, yeah. you know. Right. This is this is ex-pro pundits. Right. And it, it, yeah. it is a, a kind of a Rubicon yeah. uh, to cross. Yeah. And it's fantastic, though. And like both Alex Scott and Annie Luco, like uh, you can see the work they've put in. Mm. Like I mean, they're so well prepared, and they've and they give you know a, a bit Brian Kerrish like in mm. their knowledge of these players. So um, it's obvious though that they they feel the need exactly, to prepare better. That's exactly it because they just know like whatever. I mean, even if mm. in Annie Luco's case when she's like you know giving expert insight into these things she's still getting dogs abuse and oh, she always will yeah. always will but these women have 100 caps well that's over 100 it. caps that's you know it. they're international footballers yeah. but you know because they didn't play men's football they <laughs> feel the need to prepare more and, and maybe do. there could be a bit of that with Brian Kerr as well never played the game but that's true fair enough that's true did manage his yeah. country yeah. but you know feels the need to, to prepare more whereas Patrice Evra that's it, yeah, he just swans in and kind of... Played in World Cup final, played for Man United, blah, blah, blah. an anecdote or two about, you know... And may, I don't know, maybe it. we have un, unreasonable expectations of ex-pros in that regard, do we? Like, do, do we kind of think No, not at all. They've been paid and paid very well <laughs> to do a job that they're failing to do. As Mary maybe, says, they're literally... Maybe they don't know that the job is is what... Brian Kerr is doing and Annie Luca are doing rather than what they're doing. Maybe Patrice Ever doesn't. Maybe that's why he mm-hmm. turned up in the studio and got. He did think he could turn up and say that the ball is around the game yeah. last 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But like people like Shearer, who have been burned by this in the past and are now aware that preparation is needed and that mm-hmm. they're up against Gary Neville and mm-hmm. Jamie Carragher as opposed to somebody who knows nothing about right, the game. Like right. they, they surely know what the game is and surely there's producers pointing out to them, yeah, you need to know the names of players here. Yeah. Or that countries exist. Well, that would be a help. <laughs> I think Slavin Bilic gets the whole line of the tournament, though, when the about the Swiss goal um, last night, and you know whether it should have gone to VAR and you know disallowed. And he just said, "To be fair, I don't really care." Good man, Slavin, <laughs> because he was just still luxuriating on the Coutinho goal. Well, he, yeah, he he also whatever about the line of the tournament, he also had the face of the tournament. <laughs> I saw uh, a clip of it this morning uh, where uh, he was on a panel with Roy Keane and Lee Dixon and the presenter, they were talking about uh, how far an advanced team players should know if they're in the team or not. And uh, Roy said, uh, Roy was in, Roy was in very, very Roy form (laughs) where he went, uh, to be fair, uh, you know, I played under two great managers. Brian Clough and Alex Ferguson, they only ever named the team an hour, an hour and a half before the game. I didn't bother me. Now, in fairness, I always knew I was going to be in the team. The two lads here, maybe not so much. And Lee Dixon had a kind of a ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-ho-
the face that said, listen, mate, I played in a World Cup <laughs> the semi-final. Don't be telling me that I was, wasn't sure of being in the team. That may have happened off air after, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes when Roy is delivering a line, <laughs> he sometimes throws in the smile just so that you know he's having a gag. This was a very stony face. Yes, maybe the lads didn't know they were going to be in the team. Village has shown amazing bravery by touching Roy all the time when he's making a point on his hand or shoulder. Roy's not liking this. Yeah, Billy's done scary. Mary, thanks a million for coming in. We'll see you again next Monday uh, when there'll be ultimately and limitless more Japes to talk about. There will. Enjoy the week. Galway reclaimed the Connacht title on Sunday, beating Roscommon in Dr. Hyde Park. Malachi, you were there. It was a slightly strange game of two halves where both teams were more impressive when they were playing against the Breeze. Yeah, or or maybe maybe the better way to put it is that both teams were more crap when they had the wind behind them um, because Galway were terrible in the first half. Um and Roscommon were, were very bad in the second were half. Really bad in the second half. Yeah, and uh, like the first half looked like looked to me like it looked so self defeating for Galway. They 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 had their thirteen men behind the ball. Roscommon were just so patient, so well drilled. It was like watching a, a kind of a, a, a mini version of Dublin playing Tyrone in the All Ireland semi final last year. They just got Roscommon just moved the ball around. They didn't go into contact. They didn't play too many stupid passes. Didn't didn't give Galway anything. Galway just kind of kind of sat in. I couldn't get over it. Only for Shane Walsh, Galway wouldn't have scored in the in the first half. Um, they showed no adventure. Didn't use the wind. Um, and then they came out in the second half and played just played much higher up the pitch. Like it was noticeable from the start. Where whereas like they were still getting men behind the ball, but they were getting them behind the ball from midfield backwards whereas in the first half they were getting men behind the ball from the 45 backwards so they literally played a higher line and moved Generally, the block further up the pitch. That, that was it and, and and opened out and played much more aggressively far more intensity and like really really spooked Roscommon um, into a game like it was it was actually a cracking game in the second half then you know because it was it was not only was it more open but like they were you know there was more peril in it. Like the first half, Roscommon were kind of delighted that Galway were just giving them time to work the ball up the pitch, and there was no time for them in the second half. They had to be far more inventive, and as a, as a result, just their shooting went 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 to hell altogether. I don't know. Do people outside Galway have a higher opinion of them than the Galway team themselves? Because it almost felt like they were paying Roscommon too much respect in that first half. Yeah, I. I don't know even if it was they were paying Roscommon too much respect. I think that they had just decided that this is the way we play, that we we are a 13 men behind the ball team and that's our system and this is how we're, we're playing it. Even though, I don't know, when when you have such a win behind you, like it was the, it was the sort of win, like Enda Smith had a shot in the first half against the wind that nearly blew back to him. Uh, like it went kind of high up into the air and kind of arced back towards him. Um, like that's the sort of wind that makes a shot feasible from almost anywhere inside the 45 for the team that has it at their back. And yet Galway were playing, were just happy to play the game in their own half. I, I couldn't really work it out. Um, 
but they were they were very good in the second half. Exactly like that. They have really fine players. Like Comer is exceptional. Like Comer wasn't in the game. He's really well marked. Uh, he only got into the game the last five minutes and he scored two points. But Shane Walsh was marvellous. Like really outstanding. Uh, ran at, at Roscommon in the first half. Kicked, and he kicked two from play in the first half. Just sheer pace, driving through the heart of the defence and, and kicking it over, using the wind to kick it over. His free taking was, was excellent. He was just one of those games where you go, all right, that's that guy. Yeah. You know, that not many not many teams have this sort of player um, who's just willing to influence a game, running from deep, deciding to get on the ball, real kind of, all right, to hell with this football. You know, that kind of daring and dash. Um, and everything good that they did came off him. You know, Ian Burke scored three points. I think he had the final pass for two of them. Um, Comer got his two points at the end. Um, when Galway came out in the second half and made it uh, um, a more harem scarum game, they were better at it. You know that they they have better players than Roscommon. They played the first half like a team that didn't have better players, and they play with great aggression when yeah. they when they do that too, don't they? They really mean every tackle mm-hmm. they make and every hit they make. They they're brilliant at keeping up that momentum. Yeah, and and exactly like that, they have players that that kind of zip into contact. Uh, coming out with the ball, Sean Andy O'Kelly, Gareth Bradshaw. I think I always think Bradshaw is a really underrated uh, defender coming out for them. Uh, Paul Conroy went off and didn't didn't have much of a game, but Tom Flynn was very good around the middle. Um, and they have those forwards, like they have a, they have a serious set of forwards. And they, if they, what just what really struck you was that that game that they played in the first half with a win behind them against a team that they are better than, that doesn't speak well of their prospects, you know, for the rest of the year. They're the first team into the Super 8s now. I just, if they're playing in Croke Park against a Kerry, against, obviously against Dublin, but if they show that little adventure, I'd worry for them, you know, because... A better team than Roscommon would have been more than a goal ahead of them at at half time yesterday, and when the game opened up, uh, would have been better suited for to to use the wind. Like Roscommon in the second half shot seven wides and dropped four into the goalkeeper. Like they really should have put more pressure. And didn't on score. Him. Didn't score a point from play. Like that, that's that's a shocking second display. half. You know, so uh, like a better team than Roscommon would have had made better use of the wind in the second half they scored 1-1 one, one. one of them was a penalty one of them was a free you would imagine that a carrier at Dublin with that wind behind them in an open game probably score 1-6 one, 1-7 one, 1-8 one, in the second half and Galway just wouldn't have been able to pull it back mm. and that's the level they have to aspire to yeah, yeah exactly yeah Yeah. so that's where I was on Sunday uh, and we started Saturday with uh, Ireland's 26-21 win over Australia in the first test in Melbourne. Uh, Jerry Thorney has moved on to Sydney now with the team and he joins us now. Jerry, this was a seriously impressive showing, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought so. It was um they you know they played like they played like the second best team in the world uh, again and uh, I it would be it should never have come to a last roll of the dice in a one score game. You know, the Aussies should never have had that opportunity. I suppose if there was a couple of blemishes in the performance it was the concession of 12 Penalties and two yellow cards, albeit the Aussies conceded 15 penalties, if only bizarrely one yellow card. 
Um, and yeah, I think it was nine line breaks to one. Um, yes, the Aussies got the try off that opening line break, got a couple more um, off the line at Mall and Battery in Ireland towards the end when they were down to 14 men. Was Ireland only got the one try out of nine line breaks. Now, that being said, some of the line breaks led to penalties and um, it was rather extraordinary how the Australians could get away with so many one-handed knockdowns when Ireland overlaps or taking players out off the ball. They were very wild in defence. and uh, yeah. But I think also that was a reflection on um, a much improved attacking game, which in large part, of course, can be attributed to the return of Johnny Sexton. Joey Carberry is a wonderfully talented footballer, but he's still only 22. And Johnny, as we said last week, hadn't even broken into the Leinster team really until he was 24. But he's got that extra experience now, whatever, eight years, nine years at the top of the game. And it just means he can make decisions in that split second or two um, quicker than most other ad-halves. Um, certainly young ones still flying their trade, however gifted, and can take the ball right to the game line and a variety of passes inside, outside. And also Ireland's work rate off the ball meant that he always had those options and didn't always have to be him when you saw the furlong break up, Gary Ringland's skip pass. So it was really good variety in the attacking game. Um, but of course, as Andy Farrell had said last week, it ain't rocket science, and sometimes it just comes down to physicality. And even, despite the shock of that early concession try to Curtly Beale, pretty soon you could see that this Irish team was really up for it, and they were carrying hard into contact. They were the, the, the ball carriers were working harder, so that meant they were clearing out better, and they were presenting quick ball, lightning quick ball. And uh, yeah, they play, and they defended with much better line speed and tackled hard and went up and tackled the Wallabies in their faces and closed up a lot of Kirkley Beale's kicking game towards Israel Folau. So it was a very thorough performance when you also add in the much improved scrum and uh, some plenty of pluses like the performance of Niles Gannel. As ever, Joe Schmidt's selections were vindicated. If we were to try and um, pick some holes, Jerry, and it might sound slightly critical, but again, with an awful lot of territory and an awful lot of possession, we really struggled to convert chances. I mean, as you said, it shouldn't have come down to us being worried in the last few minutes. No, that's no doubt about it. Like I was saying, yeah, nine line breaks, only um, two tries. Sorry, it was two tries. I beg your pardon. I said one earlier, two tries. Um, yeah, um, well-worked tries, though they were, though. You know, come in the corner, good finish. Um, and, yeah, it seemed like that Ty Furlong try in particular would never come. They've been a little bit unlucky, though, you have to say, Pat, when you think that, you know, they had a couple of tries just allowed in the first test as well. At any event, that CJ Standard was over the line and, possibly very likely the ball did brush the grass overneath the try line, but it just well, couldn't be picked up by any camera angle. Keith, um, Kieran Marmion had a try disallowed. Jordan Mar- Larmer probably would have scored. Um, had Conor Murray not been done for a fumble at the base, was actually, in fact, was the Wallabies um, sub-hooker playing the ball illegally on the deck. But uh, just as Jack McGrath was faithfully do late on in the, in the second test last Saturday. But yeah, like you think of Keith Earl's break, and sometimes, uh, you know, our... They're just not getting the support runners there. You also have to say that the Wallabies um, defended and scrambled brilliantly, made a lot of try-saving tackles on their line. And um, I just think that, uh, you know, there's still a record number of tries Ireland scored in the Grand Slam over five games. They haven't become suddenly impotent and incapable of finishing off these breaks. And um, I personally think, you know, that there might well be a day soon when they'll, they'll put a very good team to the sword. At least they're creating chances, Pat. It'd be far worse if they weren't. Jerry, it, what really struck me uh, by the end, and, and I know Joe was sort of laughing wryly afterwards that <laughs> a substitution he's never considered having to make and hopes never to have to make again was putting Joey Carberry on for Devon Toner. So obvi- obviously, you know, the, the there were a lot of injuries or whatever, but it really struck me that if the, the, the Irish pack that finished the game was... 
McGrath, Herring, Porter, Carberry, Ryan, Tigburn, Jordy Murphy and CJ Stander. And still they saw it out. Like that's that's seriously, that that's the sort of thing that you want from this sort of uh, tour. Yeah, I think, um, in fairness, had it come to um, a scrum in the last minute, I doubt Joey Carberry would no. have packed down the second row <laughs> no, no. or if there'd been a line out, he'd gone into the middle of the line. Apparently, the plan, Ty Byrne, um, just to show you how difficult it is, like you get a crash course in Joe Schmidt's ways, but you have to do it covering two positions as Ian Henderson had to do as well in the past. So Ty Byrne had to learn all the moves and calls and plans and where he's meant to be in different phases of, of attack or defence. And well, it, with the uh, number four or five shirt in his back or number six shirt in his back. And he came on the back row and had there been a scrum or a line out, he would have sensibly gone into lock into the second row, alongside James Ryan, because Devon Tony just couldn't stay in the pitch. He was cramping up so much. And had to be the scrum. Robbie Henshaw, apparently, would have gone into the back row. Um, so that, would have, that was the contingency plan in place there. Um, thankfully, uh, it didn't come to that. But I guess the wider point is that they finished the game with no Levy, no Toner, no Furlong, no Mahoney, all these like pillars, and still saw it out. Yeah, and we saw that from Twickenham as well with the team that finished that day, seeing out the Grand Slam. Um, I think Jordan Larmour was our outside centre that day, wasn't he? Uh, like you know, it, it's a very adaptable squad, squad partly because they're so well prepared. I mean, they're just such a detailed preparation, and they're so well coached that they know what's expected of them when they're out of position. We've seen it before with that famous win over Australia in November 2016 with Kieran Marmy in the wing and a, a completely makeshift backline that would never have trained together. Somehow conjuring a wonderful story was through um, Simon Zebo to win that match from behind, having blown a big lead. So, yeah, it's just, there is great strength and depth, and there's also great adaptability amongst these players, which is testimony, I think, to their own sense of uh, preparation and also the extraordinary detail that they go through, um, not just in training, but more particularly in front of their laptops um, when they're not training. Uh, any word on um, what what has become of Sean Cronin? He, I, I thought, middle of last week, I thought he was expected in the, in the test team, and then he didn't make the squad at all. Yeah. Um, this is, if you go back to that first test, there was a fairly faithful scrum around about the 68th minute, I think it was, off the top of my head, when um, Ireland were leading 9-8 and had a scrum five minutes out from their own line. And the Wallabies, as they'd have been doing, targeted a point between the hooker and the Irish tight head. And this time was great success. Um, it was like, as Tyke Ferdinand described, like, like a dam bursting and water pouring through that gap. And Sean Cronin has rather copped the blame for that scrum, it seems. He's listed only as 101 kg. Um, the um, Australian hooker is 117 kg and his backup is 110. By comparison, Niall Scanner is 110. Um, Rory Best is about 105, 106. Um, so it's just... Uh, and then Bob Herring, I think, is around about the 108, 109 mark as well. So they're bigger men and uh, it's becoming important more and more important, particularly at scrum time, as we saw in that first test. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's this, there, there haven't been too many losers in this t- tour so far in this test series, but I would have to say that, unfortunately for Sean Crone, a wonderfully dynamic ball carrier, though he is, um, his, his lack of str- bulk compared to his rivals and his uh, p- perspective opponents is going to count against him, it seems. And, um, I mean, he's only won, I think, of a 62 caps, He's won 53 of them off the bench, only nine starting. And he certainly won't be adding to the nine for his sake, unfortunately for his sake, this week. Jerry, there seemed to be some selectively picky refereeing. A lot of Irish fans were a bit frustrated to see Jack McGrath get yellowed for the deliberate knockdown when Australia, I think, did four 
and didn't get a card for any of them. What was there was no complaining though about the referee from the Irish camp, was there? A little bit from Joe that he said that they felt hard done by afterwards. You know that they got the two yellow cards, but Jack McGrath played the ball on the deck um, at a ruck. Um, I think what would annoy Irish supporters was that the exact same thing happened in, towards the end of the first test, and Conor Murray complained to the referee about it, just as Nick Phipps did. And when Mario um, Stander-Esthazen uh, um, ignored Murray's entreaties, and even though it happened under his nose, he didn't go to the TMO, or the TMO didn't advise him to, and then he would have seen, that would have been um, a yellow card uh, to the Australians and a penalty under the post for Ireland, just as happened um, in the second test that Saturday, on foot of going to the TMO. It was just, it was just the utter lack of consistency in those two instances. And as well, you have to wonder um, when there is, you know, the same player commits three penalties offence in a row, Caleb Timu, and there's so many tackles off the ball, which is a carryover in the first test when the Australians had a try disallowed for Adam Coleman pinning, uh, taking James Ryan out off the ball and Israel Folau's try was um, rubbed out. That, you know, it just didn't seem to be consistent. That the, there, was not, there was a mild, couple of mild warnings from Paul Williams last Saturday in the second test, but despite repeated offences and notably the two flapdowns, the two knock-ons and a few other offences near their own line as well and a few other penalty advantages that Ireland scored their tries off so it could have been even worse. Still, there was no recourse to the yellow cards for the home side. There's a couple of things I'd like to say about this. I think, you know, this happens when you're away and I'd say a lot of the time those marginal decisions when the Southern Hemisphere teams come up to the Northern Hemisphere, including the Aviva Stadium of a November, they possibly go Ireland's way. So this is one of the things you probably have to accept when you're away from home. But yeah, they were, there were some baffling inconsistencies there. Um, but that being said, what Jack McGrath did, um, heaven forbid, it won't be tied him had Ireland happened, or had Australia happened to rescue that second test uh, with a, a last-minute seven-pointer to, to win the series. Um, the review would have been an altogether different and not good for Jack at all, I'm afraid. You might explain, Jerry. Uh, Michael Checker was talking about uh, the king hit on, by Keane Healy. Explain what a king hit is to us. It's like um, a blindside hit. You don't see it coming. And um, that's apparently it's an, it's an Aussie um, slang or vernacular for a, blind, a blindsided hit. Um, you just don't see it coming. And again, you had run a decoy line around the front of the line. Now, the camera angles, the t- television camera angles don't pick this up very clearly, but um, it looked to be a much ado about nothing, really. I mean, um, from the, 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 just the notion that, that Keane Healy was, might in any way get cited for that was pretty laughed at behind the scenes by the Irish camp. Um, just, you know, he's the moment stuff that Czech said in the immediate aftermath of defeat. Um, but that's what it meant, kind of a, a blindside hit. You don't see it coming. What do you think, uh, uh, looking forward to the final test now? It, it's, it really is... Um going to round off the, the, the rugby season, you know, um, it, it, if they win, it's it's pretty much the greatest ever season of Irish rugby. It probably is already, but this was certainly um, completed um, when you think that Ireland hasn't won a series away to one of the three Southern Hemisphere superpowers since that 2-0 series win in 1979. And to do it from coming from behind um, a one nil away at the end of such a, a high achieving and demanding season would really um, top it off when you think of a, only a third Grand Slam in history and the second since 1949 and a first ever European Champions Cup stroke Pro 14 double by Leinster with Munster also making two semi-finals. 
it's hard to think that it, it could be in any way topped other than by winning the World Cup. You know what I mean? So it's quite would be quite an extraordinary season. And like I said, all the more so coming from one nil down. It's um, remarkable to think that it looks as if at the end of such a high achieving and demanding season that all 32 players out here are actually going to be fit and training this week and that um, Joe Schmidt and his fellow coaches have a full hand to pick from, which is going to be very interesting. In a year that started with a Lions tour. In a year that started with a Lions tour. But if you, I've, I've done the, the minutes and all the players and um, I think um, Tygburn is by some distance has the most minutes, uh, over 2,200 in 30 starts for the Scarlets this season and one appearance off the bench. By comparison, the highest Irish players would be around the 1,700, 1,800 mark and they would be Munster's standard bearers, you know, the, the Conor Murray, CJ Stander, Peter Armani types who Munster probably need a little bit more than Leinster do. They can rotate a bit more, but I can't find anybody of the frontline Leinster players up in that mark. Even Tyke Ferdon has less minutes than he had going on the Lions Tour last season. And it's why he could be man of the match last week, um, because this game management system that the RFU have is so efficient and so effective that, you know, talking to Conor Murray after the second test win, he was buzzing because they just won, obviously. But, you know, we were making the point that it's still less than half the length of time it takes to tour the lines. It's half the tour, in effect, half the matches, half everything. So they seem to be all feeling fresh, certainly last Saturday's performance would suggest that they're mentally fresh as well as physically fresh, Mal. That's the big thing because, you know, when you play nothing but, so apart from your, your seasonal pipe opener against Edinburgh or whomever, um, I just say Edinburgh because for a lot of them this season it was the, the, an Edinburgh match, that, you know, in rounds four or five of the Pro 14. Thereafter, it's um, inter-pro um, derbies are life relief from eight or nine European Champions Cup matches culminating quarterfinals, semifinals, and in Leinster's case, a final. Um, and, you know, a Pro 14 campaign culminating in semifinals and a final, or in Munster's case, a quarterfinal. On top of, you know, winning a Grand Slam, so five, six nations games and a full November window. So these are all high, high, high pressure games. But because they're rested well enough in between and because their training time is managed, because the physiotherapy and S&C backup is so efficient that, you know, they're all arriving here fairly fresh the last week in the season. You compare and contrast that with England, who didn't bring a fair truckload of their lines and are 2 nil down to South Africa and Wales rested a few of their lines. It's, um, it's quite a compliment to the system. And it means also, of course, that they've got a, every chance. And it'll be interesting to see if Joe Schmidt has a slightly experimental attitude to this test or is that done and dusted with now and that there are no tomorrows after Saturday in every instance because it's the last day of a 10-month season. And the prize at stake is so huge. A first series win away to one of the Southern Hemisphere superpowers in 39 years. Um, that would be a hugely significant benchmark, I think, as well, on the way to a World Cup. Um, England did it in 2003 when they went with a full-strength squad down to New Zealand and Australia and beat both of them. And Clive, Sir Clive Woodward is off inside of that is hugely significant and then going on to win the World Cup in 2003. Because whatever about winning a Grand Slam, as England did then and Ireland have done this season, to go down to the Southern Hemisphere and take on one of their giants and beat them on their own patch. Um, that's a rare enough thing to do, as the history book shows us, and will fill this squad with even more belief of what they've achieved. And they're just a very high-achieving bunch. They want to go on doing things themselves and going where very few Irish teams have gone before. Um, they're in a special place, and they want to keep this going. And uh, I think if, if you look at it over the two games, I think certainly last Saturday would give you the feeling that, yeah, uh, if both teams are going at full tilt, 
Ireland right now seem to be a better team and I think they've got every chance of doing it. Well, listen, Jerry. thanks a million for that and uh, thanks for uh, everything across the tour. I think you, you might be travelling next week when, when we're recording, so you may be spared this duty uh, at, the, at the end of the tour and I know it's the end of the rugby season for you. So thanks a million for that and uh, enjoy the rest of the week. And uh, thanks to everybody who came in. Mary was here earlier. We were talking to Emmett over in Russia. Um, thanks to you, Pat. Thanks, Monica. Thanks to Jenny and JJ behind the desk. Uh, and we will be back next Monday, folks. I hope everybody has a good week. Cheers.